0: My dad was great. He was an entrepreneur. He was a self-employed lawyer. He was very smart. He was very funny. He loved animals. It was a huge shock. I never would have thought that he would die by suicide.
1: Did you have a chance to look at our Ignite Your Life retreat offer? don't do anything. Don't even listen to this episode before you go and look at the link below. Find out more about it. If you joined already, welcome aboard. If you did not join and you want to hear more about it, hope recharge.com forward slash retreat. The first week of January, we're going to have a three-day fun, exciting, inspiring, mind-blowing retreat in South Florida. My friend Mary will be giving workshops on the art of Kintsugi and I will be giving workshops on living with a grateful heart. Gratefulness versus gratitude, the difference between them. If you would like to join us and you would like to get to the next step and live alive, experience life on a different vibration, on a different level, join us on this retreat. We have specials going on now. If you have any questions, reach out to us. Just shoot us an email. We'll hop on a call with you. We'll see if it's right for you. We are taking a few like-minded women to this special three-day event. We cannot wait to see who joins us, whoever joined thank you. We have a lot of exciting things going on during the holiday. See all of our specials, Ignite Your Life Retreat, the Gift of Light package. Stay tuned. Join us on our Facebook and on our Instagram. Join our community. Stay in the conversation so you don't miss incredible fun offers and incredible information that we are sending your way. Thanks for being here. Enjoy this unique episode.
2: In this episode of the Hope to Recharge podcast, we welcome Margie Feldhund. Margie is the co-owner of Interview Connections, the first and leading podcast booking agency. Margie and her business partner lead an in-house staff of over 20 full-time employees in their Rhode Island office and have successfully scaled the agency to multiple seven figures. Their team of in-house booking agents are the podcast powerhouses behind many successful entrepreneurs and businesses, including Allie Brown, AWeber, USA Financial, and more. Margie joined Interview Connections in twenty. 2016, as a contractor, becoming its first employee in 2017 and acquiring 50% equity in the business by 2018. By 2019, she'd helped lead the business to its first seven figure year without any direct marketing or advertising. When she's not busy guesting on podcasts or recording her own show, we get it, your dad died. Margie is active in animal rescue, organizing yearly fundraisers called Art for Animals, and in 2019 was recognized for her efforts with a Humane Heroes Award. In this episode, we hear Margie discuss the aftermath of her. Her father's suicide, his struggle with mental health, and hoarding. As an only child, she was thrust into the role of going through her parents' house after he passed, which gave her the fortitude and strength and skills to become the successful entrepreneur that she is today. And now, your host for the Hope to Recharge podcast, Matana.
1: Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining me here today. Today, I have a special guest, somebody that was in my Facebook ads for over a year. And I always wondered what she does. And I actually spoke to one of her staff members. And then I see that she has a podcast and I started listening to it because it caught my eye. It's under the topic of mental illness. I was caught by surprise, and we're going to get into it in this episode, what she talks about. So Margie, welcome to this show. Thank you for joining me here today.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Tell me a little bit about your business and then we're going to go into what your podcast is about. Sure. Yeah. My podcast
0: and my business, they're very different. So I'm the CEO and co-owner of Interview Connections. We are a multi seven figure booking agency. So we book entrepreneurs as guests on podcasts to grow their brand and help them get more leads. And then we also do a lot of coaching and consulting and strategy on monetizing the podcast, growing your business as you get all these new leads, how you expand to accommodate them. So that is what Interview
1: Connections does. You're among podcasters all day long, right? You're meeting with podcasters, with entrepreneurs, you're matchmaking between them, you're growing the audiences for everyone. And then you start your own podcast and it's a very different name. The name of her podcast is We Get It, Your Dad Died. I had to read it four times. Wait, We Get It, Your Dad Died. Is it empathy? Is it sympathy? Is it explanation? So talk to me a little bit about the name and why you chose that name.
0: I developed this podcast at the same time as I've been writing a book and doing a talk on it. And then I actually shortened the talk and turned it into the first episode because COVID Mm -hmm. happened, so all the plans to speak in person with it didn't happen. So the title was a joke and I was a little afraid to use it because I was like, I don't know if people are gonna find this like extremely offensive.
1: I was like, I said there's for sure a meaning behind it. I want to know the story. I was working
0: with this great speaking coach who was helping me develop these ideas and the talk and the book. and I had been working on it and writing about it for so long and then I guess interview connections we book people on podcasts. so of course, me and my business partner, both guests on podcasts every month. So I'm, it always comes up in my interviews because it's such a big part of my entrepreneurial journey. I just felt like I was writing about it and talking about it all the time. I was talking to my speaking coach and I was like, I really just want to call it. We get it. Your dad died. (laughs) Cause I feel like I'm talking about it all the time. And she did not like it, but I still ran with it and really great.
1: You know why it's a good name? Because people are curious. It can't be what you're saying. It can't be what we're reading. It has to be a deeper meaning. So I'm going to ask you, I have a friend that always says, when people ask you what you do, make sure that it's so confusing. They're going to say, wait, what? Make it so random and so out of the box that people say, wait, tell me more. What does that mean? And I think the name we get at your dad died. Tell me more. Is it that you spoke about it too much and people were not giving you the empathy you needed? Or were you speaking about it too much and people rolling their eyes? Or were you speaking about it and people that didn't have a parent that died don't get it and it could be frustrating or maybe it's all of the above? No, honestly, people have been really great about
0: it. It was more just me making a joke myself because it was really important to me that the podcast was authentic to me. I didn't make it the way that I thought a podcast about these topics should be. I made it myself. So there's funny moments The cover art is pink with a gravestone on it. It's not really somber. The title's a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek kind of lightness. My dad was really funny. He passed that down to me, that appreciation of comedy. And so to really make it true to the story and to his legacy and to me, I really just went for it. And it's everyone who knows me have said, it's very you.
1: Oh, okay, good. It's very you. That's why I was so curious. I can't tell you how many new podcasts are published every week. This caught my eye. I'm very specific to what I listen to because I have mm-hmm. so many gurus that I listen to. I put it on my wish list. What am I going to listen to? And I didn't even wait to put it on my wish list. I just pressed play right away. The first episode went straight into your story and why and how and what we're going to hear. It was great. What was so shocking about your story? is that it wasn't about the way he died and why he died. It was what happened after he died and your discovery and where you were going. And that's when I was blown away because that week I told you that I was immersed in this whole topic of hoarding. Tell us a little bit more about your podcast then, and then we're gonna go into my questions. Yeah, I'm,
0: thank you so much for listening. I've been really touched by the feedback that I've gotten and people saying that it's really been helpful for them. And even people who haven't lost anyone found it helpful, which I thought was really cool and very interesting. The first episode is my story. And then the other episodes are interviews with high achieving entrepreneurs. So people who have created and are running seven, eight figure businesses who have experienced a really profound loss. A lot of them are pretty traumatic losses. I started researching because like you said, Really, what happened after he died was surprising. The suicide was very shocking, but equally shocking was what happened afterwards. Because if you would ask me before what would happen if my dad, who I was very close with, suddenly died by suicide, I would be like, oh, my life would fall apart. I would never do anything again. I would never get out of bed. I would never get dressed. That's what people said to me. They're like, I can't believe you're out of bed. I was like, me either. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's very surprising the way that you react to things like that. And my life did fall apart, but I found that there was a big silver lining to that Mm -hmm. because my old life fell apart and I created this new life that was so much more authentic that I, I had this much deeper understanding of myself. I was much more compassionate and I had this faith in myself that I was so resilient Because I had survived this and continued to keep going and and taking care of my family. And that gave me the confidence to start like growing businesses and stuff like that. Because I was like, wow, if I can do this, I can do anything. And previously to this, I hadn't had a lot of faith in myself. I really, my inner monologue was I had a lot of depression and anxiety and I would not do stuff. And I, so I really, when I would approach a challenge, I would, my internal monologue was always like, oh, I can't do it. And when I was forced to clean up this house and deal with the aftermath of my dad's death and process my own grief and do all that work that comes with it, it totally changed my understanding of myself and what I felt like was possible for
1: life. Powerful. The reason why I caught my eye because I saw death by suicide and I'm like, okay, I want to hear how you got through it. And what was it like? And how did you hear about it? And what was Your dad's life before he died by suicide, was he constantly depressed? You're saying that he was a very funny person. Did you see it coming? Was it shocking? Did you ever think he might die by suicide? And then right away, after you say that you found, you got the phone call, you were living in Taiwan. I lived in Hong Kong for a year. So I like, I right away, Mm -hmm. I found like some kind of a connection Mm -hmm. and you came right back. And what you were doing was you realized you have to start going through, what did you say, 24, 44 yards worth of dumpsters of of how big was that dumpster to throw out all of your stuff that their father's hoarding? Yeah,
0: I I think it was like a 40 yard dumpster. It was gigantic.
1: And, and then, and then there was like
0: more stuff. There was, I donated a lot of stuff, anything that was in good enough condition to be donated, I donated, we sold some stuff. So it was totally extreme. My dad was great. He was really smart. He was an entrepreneur. He was a self-employed lawyer. He was very smart. He was very funny. He loved animals. It was a huge shock. No, it nev- I never would have thought that he would die by suicide. And when I realized something was going on, my partner at the time was like, you need to call your mom, which it was evening in Taipei. So it was like 5 a.m. in Rhode Island. So number one, that's a bad sign. That's not going to be a casual phone call. And then also my parents were still together. So you would have said, call your parents. So I kind of knew I had this like very nice day at work and I got home. It was like six or 7 p.m. And my partner at the time, his face was just like white as a sheet. And he was like, you need to call your mom. And so at that point, like things started falling apart and I knew it was going to be really bad. And I tried to get some reassurance and I was like, like, how bad is this? And he was like, you just need to talk to your mom. And I was like, is it like the worst thing that could possibly
1: happen? Like you're trying to prepare yourself.
0: When I said, is this the worst thing that could have possibly happened? He just said, you need to call your mom. Like that was like
1: a confirmation. Yeah, it's pretty darn bad.
0: At that point, I knew that my dad was either like dead or in the hospital. And he had some like heart problems, not super severe, but I'm like, oh my God, either he had a heart attack or he was in a car accident. Like I was like a hundred percent sure. No part of me would have suspected suicide At all, ever. I got on Skype with my mom and she, to her credit, is very direct in situations like this. Practical. Yeah. So she was just like, dad's dead. He killed himself. Oh my God. Yeah. That's exactly what she said. And then my arms and legs started to, which I had not experienced before. I immediately went into, are you okay? Really? Yeah. Which really surprised me because I don't know. I, I wouldn't have predicted it would be like that, but I immediately was like, okay, he's dead. I've got this one surviving parent. I got to make sure she doesn't kill herself.
1: Wow. Because
0: she had some mental health issues too. So it it surprised me how practical I was because I was like, I reassured her. I was like, it's going to be okay. And then I got off, then I called my boss and I said, I'm not going to be coming to work anymore because my dad killed himself. And then I hung up. It was a very surreal. Yes. And I just started doing stuff. I think people just go into shock. And also I'm very much a productive person. So when something happens, I'm like, cool, what are my action steps? And then I just remember the worst part in the beginning, really the first six months, but especially those those first few nights, it was just like being in shock. I just felt so cold. I would kind of sleep. I would try to sleep at night, but then I would wake up. And those first few days, you don't remember right away because this person has been such a fixture in your life. We were so close. So I just remember waking up at 5am and opening my eyes. And it was like hearing the news all over again, every time I would remember. And so it was just, yeah, it, it's hard to describe.
1: Yeah. Were you his shining star? Are you an only daughter?
0: Yes, I'm an only child. Like total daddy's girl. We oh were my God. very close. Oh my like, God. It was oh
1: like God. as bad as it could possibly be. Oh my goodness. So you go into this like shock, but automatic. Okay, let's move forward. Let's go. What do you, you come back to America? What do you do?
0: I had this job. I had to do a, sell all our stuff so that we could move. There was some tax stuff in Taiwan I had to do that required picking up forms for my work, bringing them to the tax office, and then waiting for them. My mom just moved in with her best friend who lived nearby, but she was just like, goodbye. She could not even look at the house. And we had pets. So the dog went to dog daycare camp my now business partner saw my Facebook post and she was like, I'll come pick up a cat. So she we didn't know each other that well, but I was like not in a position to be picky. She had to go to this hoarded house, meet with my mom, who was in a very dark place. So it was like kind of an intimate thing for someone who had really just been like a coworker and kind of a casual acquaintance. But that's like our bond that now we run this business together really started from her adopting kitten. But so once all the pets were safe and my mom was settled at her best friend's house, I actually didn't come home. I was supposed to leave Taiwan and come back home actually in a couple months. I was like nearing the end of my two year stay. And we had planned this backpacking trip for a month to go to these countries that we hadn't gone to yet, like Cambodia and the Philippines. And we're going to go back to Thailand. So it's very hard to understand decisions that you make under these situations, but everything was all set for the moment. And I knew that once I got home, it would just be like nonstop work. And I'd actually been planning to clean out the house before my dad died. Like I had decided in Taiwan that I was going to do it. And I spent my two years in Taiwan, like thinking about it, like writing positive affirmations about the house being clean researching cleaners. So I was already in touch with some cleaners in Rhode Island where my parents live. And then he died and I had to reach back out and be like, my dad died, but also I still need your help. It was very shocking. But so I went on this one month long trip, which was awful. Because you
1: were crying every day. You I were was bringing, crying every your day. Your broken yeah. heart came with you. You were trying to yeah. fulfill your dream, which now is a nightmare. Literally do the checklist before you go home to do the major checklist, which was your biggest goal to clean out your father's hoarder's house.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I went on the trip. I did cry every day. There were some, it was nice to have that space to just reflect before going home and being like, fully in it but it yeah it was a very strange trip and then I got home and it was like the dead of winter in Rhode Island it was like even colder than it usually is so it was like freezing there was like four feet of snow on the ground which is much much more than we usually get so it was just like it was a nightmare it was very surreal and then I just got home And there was nowhere for me to put my stuff. There was like nowhere for me to sleep. My dad had been hanging out in and sleeping in my childhood room. So it was like trashed. So I was just like sleeping in this random spare room full of stuff, like on a mattress on the floor. And it was
1: just surreal. How old were you when you moved to Taiwan?
0: I was 24 when I moved to Taiwan and I was 26 when my dad died
1: you moved as an adventure. You just wanted to do something before life starts. I'm going to go travel like Israelis. I'm Israeli. So Israelis after the army, they go to the far East and they go to Thailand, they go to China, they go to India. They let out all the anxiety from being in the army, in the military for so long. And then they come back and they start life. Some come back and some don't. So is that what you were doing basically? Just like letting everything out from your youth and experiencing life before the real life starts.
0: Um, I think kind of I love to travel, so I knew that I wanted to I like studied abroad in Italy in college and I loved it. And so I knew that as soon as I graduated college, I wanted to go somewhere, live somewhere I'd never been, like on a continent I had never even visited. It was just like a fun thing to do. My partner at the time was going to go to grad school. I didn't really have a plan. <laughs> at all. But I was just like, let's do this. And then eventually we can come back and you can go to grad school and I'll figure my life out. But I didn't really have a plan for life. But I love to travel. So I just felt like it was the right thing to go to Asia. And then I ended up based on
1: research picking Taiwan. Did you work as well to sponsor it? Yeah. So you like did side gigs in order to be able to afford it?
0: No. So I was an English teacher. So I looked into either the Peace Corps or teaching English and teaching English is like a much shorter commitment. It's much easier and you can control where you go. Mm -hmm. So also if you're not married, you can't go necessarily go to the same place if you're in the Peace Corps. And like Mm -hmm. my partner and I were planning to go together somewhere. Mm -hmm. So teaching English just seemed like a really easy way to get paid to live abroad.
1: Oh, cool. And what was your partner doing at the time?
0: He was also teaching. We worked for the same school.
1: What was it like to grow up with a father that had depression?
0: I knew he had depression because he was taking medication for it. But if I hadn't known that, I would not have thought he had depression. No symptoms. I'm sure he had symptoms, but it wasn't visible to me. I'm glad that there's the word hoarding now because it was really rough, and any like children of hoarders I'm sure can relate. The hoarding shows can be problematic because there's like an aspect of like voyeurism that's not necessarily respectful of people's mental health. But I also think that these shows about hoarding are helpful because those of us who've experienced it didn't know that it was a thing. Like I thought it was just. Like my family type of thing. I didn't know that there was a name for it and that other people had experienced it. So that's very comforting to know now. I didn't really know what was going on. I just knew that the house was just a mess. And I went to private school. So all my friends were like very rich and had housekeepers and these like gorgeous, like magazine looking houses. I felt very frustrated with my parents that they couldn't just keep it together and do basic stuff like cleaning up after themselves. So my parents are both pretty bad with that. My mom's not quite a hoarder, but she's like very disorganized and very messy. It wasn't like the most severe hoarding ever, but it was bad. It didn't look like a normal house. And I was very embarrassed by it. And I would like make every excuse to keep people from seeing
1: it. That was my next question. Were you embarrassed to bring friends home?
0: Yes. And I would just go out. Like I wanted to be out of the house as much as possible. So you find those friends who have like very lax parents who like let you do whatever. And you just basically are at their house all the time. So that was my strategy.
1: So growing up, you knew that something was different, but you couldn't say, okay, wait, my father keeps a lot of crap and the house is messy. You just knew that you weren't similar to your friends, which you wished your house was immaculate and your mother was put together and you had a housekeeper and your father didn't keep the garbage, but you didn't really know what was going on.
0: Yeah. And the thing about hoarding that's surprising is like a lot of hoarders are really smart. They're very functional. A lot of them, if you worked with them, you wouldn't guess. They don't look dirty. They're like clean. Their clothes are nice. Their teeth are brushed. They don't look like a mess. They hide it. I think it's surprising to people how many hoarders there actually are and how much you really can't tell. I was just sort of mad at my parents because my mom Seemed more depressed than my dad. She got diagnosed with MS and that affected her brain and made her more depressed. Mm -hmm. So there was a long time where she was like staying in bed all day, but he was always the one taking care of me, feeding me, driving me places. Like he was my rock, where she was a little bit more like absent and she had her own problems. But I just felt frustrated with them because they didn't seem at the time mentally ill. They seemed like they were just, functioning,
1: but just not caring. Yeah, it
0: just seemed like they didn't care. And yes. my dad was not a hoarder in the sense that like, he wanted he felt really attached to things. It was more like he just didn't care. Like if he couldn't find something, he would buy a new one and he wouldn't clean. So it wasn't like I was fighting him to get rid of newspapers or anything. He just didn't want to deal with it there would just be stuff and like dirt. And he just never took the time to do that vital self-care that is organizing and going through your stuff. So it was interesting.
1: I grew up in poverty and it wasn't something uh, not normal. And I remember speaking to a friend and she said that she took all of her babysitting money to clean up the house before friends came over because she was so embarrassed and she had to scramble together to even buy cleaning products. And maybe even hire somebody for an hour or two, because it was just so embarrassing because they kept everything, but everything was just garbage and not functional. She said, I always felt like the mother in the house, but why couldn't my mother just do the work? It's definitely
0: there's a shift to who feels like the parent Mm -hmm. and, but I wasn't willing to take that on. So I just kind of got angry and left and tried to not be home. And sometimes I would be like, come on, guys, let's clean this, but they were very resistant. So yeah, but there's a lot of shame and embarrassment. Because it's just it's confusing when you're younger. I am a big animal lover, I take in strays. So they weren't like animal hoarders. I was the one bringing home all these animals. Yeah. Because they, it was like all animals that had nowhere else to go. No one wanted them. They were going to be put down. And I, so I would take them home and my parents were very nice about it. Like they would pay their vet bills. Everybody, all the pets were really well taken care of. They were up to date on everything. But when you have that type of mess, it's really hard to not have it get out of control with pets because when cats and stuff, like see big piles of stuff, especially if you have a bunch of cats who don't get along, they start marking. And if you don't have a clean house where you're looking through, you're moving stuff, you're cleaning stuff right away, stuff like that just sits and it compounds the problem. So we
1: had a big cat pee issue. You're the second person telling me this. Oh Oh my my gosh. Yes. I'm not a animal person at all, even though I used to bring home animals, but cats in Israel is something very dirty because they live in the trash in Israel. So no one likes cats in Israel, but I bought any other animal. And somebody told me that her mother was a hoarder and she was embarrassed to bring friends home because the pee smell was all over the house. And she didn't realize it until she was 22 how awful it was and that and and the bugs and stuff like that was coming along but she was embarrassed she said i never understood why friends didn't want to come to my house until i understood that it was the smell cat pee is the worst smell ever
0: we didn't have 100 cats or anything but it's like when you have pets you have to clean up after them you have to be on top of stuff you can't have a lot of clutter that's hiding messes that then end up sitting there.
1: Wow. So that was another struggle you had. Maybe leaving to Taiwan was like, I need to go so far to figure out my life and just to, maybe your subconscious went far Yeah. just to disconnect because you didn't want to be associated with, with any of this. How did you know if you're going to become a hoarder? or did you have to work to um, adapt these habits that you grew up in?
0: No. Not at all. I I think people either go in like one direction or the other. Like I know people whose parents are hoarders and they're really messy too. I really looked at the way my parents manage money and manage the house as like a cautionary tale and did the exact opposite. So I am like great with money. I don't use debt at all and I have a very clean house. It it can't just be clean. Like I want to walk into a room And just feel happy because it looks like a from a magazine, beautiful. So I just bought this new house and it's just been so nice. It's like super organized, decorating, home improvement. I'm doing a big like backyard project. So to me, it had the opposite effects because now I truly appreciate living in a beautiful environment. Like what your environment looks like has such an impact on your mental health. And I don't think people realize it. And you feel so much more energetic and creative when there's open spaces. So no, now I really curate my life to
1: be like what I couldn't have before, which is great. And I really appreciate it. There's a saying from the from the father, the books of fathers. What we hear now from mentors is everything from Talmudic Jewish book. It's called Perkei Avot. And it says, I'm gonna say it in Hebrew and then I'm gonna translate it. It says, A beautiful home, which means with beautiful things and organized, expanded expands the mind of a person. One of the things that I said that I wanted tall ceilings. I wanted big. I wanted 18 foot ceilings, and and I was persistent. I said, "Ari, my husband," I said, "I want tall ceilings," and I and he's what is this passion? I said, "I want large." Space, because I just feel calm when there's like space around me and no clutter. Now, as I said to you before, my husband's father is a hoarder. I know what hoarders are. I know what it's like. It's it's suffocating. And when I feel, and this is where I'm gonna bring my friend Mimi in. My friend Mimi is a professional organizer, and she has a talent that she just can see what doesn't have to be there right away. And I remember when I first met her, I'm like, your kids have only four shirts and two shoes. Do you sometimes feel stuck? Do you wish you can be somewhere else? Do you have a vision of where you want to get to, but you just don't know what the first step to take in order to get to that life that you're dreaming of? Many people ask me, what did I do in order to create this wellness that I'm living in? How did I shift from deep depression, from extreme anxiety to a thriving life, to a productive life, to a life full of joy? I put many things into practice and it's every single day. Many of you know that it's gratitude, a healthy mindset, boundaries, self-love, and one of the most important things that many people don't speak about forgiveness, self-forgiveness and forgiveness to others, essential for healing. I put together a package for those that want to increase their wellness in their life and implement these techniques custom made for their lives. If you want to work one-on-one with me on these topics in order to move forward towards that dream life that you have a vision of, click the link below in the show notes. It's called Gift of light. It was on sale in the month of December. We're extending it for a little bit of January. So grab it now before it increases in price. It's a custom made program for you. One-on-one with me. Eight sessions. We will develop a concrete program that you can implement in your life so you can create a better well-being. Click the link below. Looking forward to working with you. My kids had 20 because I never had shoes growing up because I was in poverty. So I buy shoes even if they don't need it. I give away shoes that they never wore because it's my obsession, shoes. So I just buy shoes and then I give them away. So my friends are very happy because I'm constantly giving away shoes. But I remember opening the closet. I'm like, Mimi, four shirts, two skirts, two shoes. And she said, I don't need more. That's it. And then you give them away and then you buy more. And you go into her fridge and it's perfect. Like a few things on the top shelf, a few things. And their big fridge are sub zeros and her freezer. And she taught me that when I get very anxious, I go clean out my fridge by Tuesday. So, Sabbath is our holiday. It's like Thanksgiving. So, every weekend, I cook a tremendous amount. Every weekend is Thanksgiving. So, I, it's, my fridge is full and we have company and it's whatever you can imagine. By Tuesday, it needs to be empty. By Monday, I'm getting itchy. I'm like, okay, let's get rid of the food. Let's give it away. I always give it away. And people ask me, what do you do when you get anxious? I said, I clean out my fridge or my closet. It's just that simple. And Mimi taught me that. And she started it as a profession to help people that don't even know how to get rid of things. So I think that's what your father was going through. Like, where do I start? Yeah,
0: it gets out of control so fast. And I've just in reading about hoarding, have read about how it gets so much worse with age. So people might be in their 20s and 30s, a little bit messy, like a little bit messier than the, than the average person or just slightly messy, not even standing out. But that same person in their 40s and 50s, if they haven't dealt with it, it just compounds and then it gets so overwhelming. And then it's this big project. And if somebody's depressed, they don't have motivation and energy to tackle a big
1: project like that. So what is a hoarder's mind? What goes on? You did the research. I'm sure you did the research. So what is the illness with a hoarder's mind? I think it's important to understand their point of view so we don't look down upon them. There must be something that's holding them back. I'm not
0: a professional or a doctor, so I can't really comment on it. But the biggest thing that I've observed is like hoarders are just normal people. A lot of the time, I think that there's trauma. I I believe that the majority of the world's problems are just people with unprocessed trauma walking around. And people take that trauma out in different ways. And even people who are functional on the mental health spectrum, who are pretty well adjusted normally, have a baseline of being well adjusted and mentally healthy, everybody has something. Everybody has some little weird thing that can get out of control. So I really think in having empathy to hoarders, it's really important to remember that they're not that different from us. And we all have some people lash out, some people are violent, some people are alcoholics, some people binge eat. Like most people have something that they do when they haven't processed a trigger that keeps coming up. I would just look at hoarders and look at your own life. There's something that you do that you don't love or you don't feel fully in control of. And I think it's no different. And if you let something like that go, it gets worse and, and more noticeable.
1: Do you think it's somebody that can transform, like an alcoholic can become clean? Can a hoarder actually transform himself or herself and become a non hoarder? Or do we always have to hire? organizers once a year to make sure that we stay in check.
0: I do believe that if a hoarder is really willing to look into what's happening and open to help, a lot of the times, because hoarders feel so judged by other people, and if you come in and you don't understand them, and you're just like, what are you doing? You don't need this, and start throwing their stuff out. It violates their trust, and they're not going to listen to you. So there are people out there who are great with hoarders, who understand how to talk to them who understand how to build trust and respect so that the person understands that they're not going to violate that and throw out something that they didn't want thrown out. But yes, I do think people can heal, especially if they process whatever trauma is behind it. They may always be disorganized, but that's not a problem. Like I'm a big believer in who, not how. If you're just messy, then have an organizer, have a house cleaner. That's okay. You don't have to learn to be a different person You just have to figure out what who's you need to support you in that area so you can stay in the areas where you're really gifted. That might be hard
1: for other people, but come easily to you. I interviewed Gene Martini. He said, know what you're good at and what you're not good at. Give out to others. He said, I haven't driven a car in 30 years because I hate driving. I gave it to somebody else. I hate cooking. So I have a cook. And I'm like, yeah, let's farm out what we're not good at and own it and say it's okay. Now, when with hoarding, there's a, there's two parts. What could be that somebody's really just not good. They don't see the mess. I know that I want to clean. I don't know how to get it clean. I get very anxious. I know how to throw things away. I'm very good at throwing things away, even too good at it. My mom always says, you never ask what it is. You just throw it out. My husband's always, like, what are you going to throw out now? You're going to throw me out? I'm like, we're, we're like, just slow down but I'm not good in keeping it organized that it doesn't get to that degree of me freaking out and saying, okay, let's do a clean out every few months. And I'm just not good at it. my friend Mimi is excellent. She knows what to keep all the time and what not all the time. And she could see it. Some people don't even see the mess even after 50 years. They don't even, like, we're good. We're good. We have room to walk around. Yeah, we can't find the fridge but we have work time. We have what we need. I know exactly where my mess is. My husband always tells my housekeeper, don't touch my dresser. I know exactly where my mess is. If you start organizing my mess, I won't know where things are. It's not about figuring it out. And maybe hoarders need to stay hoarders. Maybe that's their security. But I'm wondering after you cleaned up your father's house and you threw out everything and you donated, do you feel that part of his mental illness could have been dealt with if he dealt with his issue of hoarding?
0: I think he would have had to deal with what was underneath the hoarding. I really believe that hoarding is just a surface level manifestation of something that's going on much deeper. I don't know a lot of details about his childhood because his siblings don't want to talk to me about it, Mm. but there was a lot of abuse and neglect. That I'm sure didn't get dealt with. I think in general, men are not really allowed to seek therapy and dive into stuff like that. I think there's a lot of the trauma leads to shame about not being able to just walk it off and deal with it. So i don't think it's about the hoarding like i just like when people are alcoholics i don't think it's about alcohol there's something oh, for underlying sure. there for sure and so that's what needs resolution so if he had been willing to but he didn't want to some people would rather die than face what's there and that's
1: their decision what led him to suicide after all did he leave leave a letter or anything
0: He did leave a note. It was very short and it was very nice just saying that he loved us and that he was sorry, but there wasn't an explanation. Part of the through line of this book I have coming out is this sort of pseudo-detectiving that I was doing, which is really common in survivors of suicide who are ruminating and trying to figure it out. And I think the biggest thing, sometimes there's one big event, but I think it was like the hoarding where it was really more this slow burn of things getting slightly worse and slightly worse. And like these patterns forming of not dealing with stuff, not cleaning stuff up, not, you know, seeking help, not talking about it. And every time you choose to keep it inside instead of talking about it, it gets a little bit harder to talk about it. It gets a little bit hard to pick it up once things have been getting messier and messier. So I think it's that kind of slight edge effect working in a negative way where it just compounds. And I think there was a lot of stuff. I would guess that it has more to do with trauma before I met him than anything else. But it's, I'm a big believer in the law of attraction. And when you don't deal with stuff and you just go into this negative place, you just attract more negativity. So I, I went down all these roads, he was in debt. So I was like, Oh, maybe it was because he was in debt and he didn't want to deal with it. But then as I've learned more, I believe that he was in debt because he knew he was going to kill himself someday. So he was managing money like somebody who wouldn't have to deal with the consequences, which makes a lot of sense.
1: But I'm getting out of this, that there's also emotional hoarding when it comes to our feelings. This is like a new thing that just came to my mind. As you're speaking, the emotional hoarding that we keep all the shame, regret, anger, people that we don't forgive. It's emotional hoarding that if we don't air it out and we don't get rid of it, we can collapse.
0: I think it's a lot about self-forgiveness. And I think a big part of hoarding is that hoarders don't believe that they deserve better. They just don't care because they don't believe that they deserve to live in a clean, beautiful environment. So I think those underlying issues getting resolved would help them strive for a better way of life and to really be able to enjoy every day. And that's possible for them because I think they don't feel like that's possible.
1: That's profound. Was your mother helping you clear out the house or she couldn't deal with it? It was just too much for her.
0: I was basically forcing her.
1: My friend tells me that it's a whole therapy session every single time she works with a client to talk to them through the pro- the things. And then it becomes, okay, wait, this newspaper clipping from 40 years ago, wait, I want to keep it because I remember this. And this dish is from something. And this dish which is like, you haven't seen in 40 years. So let's see what the emotion is. I can't imagine what your mother was going through. First of all, losing her husband and then just getting rid of, of all the memories. It was
0: rough. I'm very determined But she was very mad at me a lot of the time because she wanted me to just back off and I wouldn't back off because I needed her to do a lot of it because it was her house. Like she had to go through so much stuff. She had to sign off on getting rid of stuff. So she had to sit there and go through boxes and boxes of paperwork, go through all the books, go through everything. So I did find someone amazing to help me who specializes specifically in hoarding. And that was nice because she was like nicer to her than me because she doesn't know her as well. So it is it is really helpful, like what your friend's doing to get a third party in, especially for children of hoarders, because your parents might not listen to you, but they'll be on better behavior with a third party who's mm-hmm. not you sometimes. But, and then that person ended up like disappearing and I had to take over a couple months in and it took a lot. I, I really couldn't back down. And now I I was actually talking about this the other day because I coach people now and that's one of my big strengths is like I don't back down and standing for what's possible for people, even if they yell at me, even if they start crying, it's okay, great. I'm still standing for what's possible for you because I'm not going to relate to you as this problem or as a small person, because I know what you really are and what you're really capable of. Now I'm like, you should be grateful I'm not doing to you what I did to my mom, because every morning at 6 a.m., I would play Eye of the Tiger and I would dance into her room and she was so annoyed with me. Every day I'd be like, time to get up, time to go through stuff. And like her husband had just died, like she'd been through the tragedy, but honestly, it was the greatest gift I could have possibly given her. And now she thanks me all the time. That's what I
1: wanted to ask you. Did she see it or did you
0: see it? No, she is so grateful now. She got her life back. She's able to have friends over. Like her best friend has cat allergies. So she can't go in a messy house because of all the dander. But now she's got a cleaning person who comes every other week. She's actually doing this major remodel. So not only is the house clean, but it's going to have this gorgeous new kitchen and bathroom her deck is going to be in fine homes magazine. Wow. And I found that out a couple weeks ago and it was just the most, it was the most full circle
1: moment for me that I
0: like cried. I just, that's what I
1: get. Like literally turning it upside, like like this, like unbelievable thing is that I don't know how you did it because thinking about it, you were 26 and who are you to come to tell your mom, clean up your house? It's her house. She could have said, you know what, Margie, get out of here. It's very nice of you. I hear, but I'm not listening to you. How did you have that courage to to really step into the place that's not yours and say, you need me here? That's just how my personality
0: is, which came in handy. Sometimes it bothers people, but having a strong personality is helpful in situations like that. Also, there was just this strong knowing and I'm really I'm not religious, but I really do believe in like source or whatever you want to call it and stuff happening through you and it was really time. So I think I got a lot of strength from that that wasn't necessarily coming from me. And the other thing that helped is because my dad had just died. She felt kind of bad for me. So before when I had tried to get her to do stuff, she was just like, go away. But she was a little bit in a weakened state because of what had happened. So she was a little more receptive to me to asking her to do stuff. And she felt bad for me because it was brutal. We were so close, me and my dad, and she knew that. So I think she also humored me because she was like, she's been through something so bad too. And I think a part of her knew that it needed to happen. And it, once it got momentum, now she like lets me, and I still do stuff on her house because she's still
1: cluttered. So that's what I wanted. Like like, like, a habit has to take time. And it's not just because you cleaned it out. It doesn't mean that she's not going to bring it in again. Her house will
0: probably always be more cluttered than I will keep my house, but I don't let it get to an extreme point. Like her mom died. And she brought 80 boxes of stuff from her mom's house, just random stuff. I spent, yeah. So this was like the after you, couple
1: of, After you cleaned yeah. it out and you did the whole thing and like suddenly 80 boxes are coming and you are having yeah. a heart attack. You're like, no, this yeah, is no
0: absolutely. Box. Yeah. I basically just drove her crazy. I had a tally mark of the number of boxes. And I would go every weekend and sit with her and make her go through these boxes. So we finally, we finished all the boxes, I would say six to nine months ago, right before they like started construction on the renovation. So the nice thing is we now have this ability to work together. So she's still cluttered, but she listens to me more when I'm like, cool, sit down, we're doing this. Instead of fighting back,
1: she's just, okay, because she knows I have her best interest at heart that's special. And that it doesn't happen so fast. So she must really value you and respect you that she knows to get out of her own way, which is huge for someone her age, it doesn't usually happen. So I think it's just it shows you do it out of love and compassion and not ownership.
0: It's definitely from a place of love, because it's a lot of work.
1: It must be also a toll. I'm wondering, do you feel like forever you're going to be responsible for her well-being? Because you're basically her only descendant right now, right? I do.
0: Luckily, she's like independent still and working, but it's a helpful thing. That's like my journey too that I'm constantly working on is like being responsible and loyal and being a good daughter and also knowing when to let certain things go, when to not own or want to control something. And it's a a constant kind of journey. There is a shift. Like when we are like doing something to her house, it's not how I would want it. It's a compromise between our two things, but it's, I've gotten better at accepting that she's going to make a mess, but she will compromise to make it more manageable so that at least she can have public spaces that are clear enough for her to have people over, which is important for her. So it's been interesting. I've I've learned so much about working with people and I've really been able to apply it to the business and to how I lead our team. We have 25 full-time employees and she's really been my greatest teacher in motivating people without controlling them, without being so attached to the outcome. It's been a journey.
1: Wow. So now that you've finished cleaning up, you've started your very successful company. What's your vision now that you went through this process that you wouldn't have dreamt of going through because it really clearing out the house just transformed you into this new being? What do you want to do with that?
0: Part of it is just continuing my parents' legacy of speaking about hoarding and ending the stigma on podcasts writing this book, my own show, creating this space for people to heal is really important to me. And the transformation, I'm really passionate about what we're doing. Getting people on podcasts or sharing their stories. And my favorite quote is the Mother Teresa quote, find someone who believes he's alone and convince him that he's not. And I really strongly feel that when people share their story, no matter what it is on podcasts, they give that gift to the people who listen and there's a ripple effect. So just continuing that, that mission of finding people who think they're alone and convincing them that they're not through business coaching, through podcast guesting, through hosting my own show, through book writing, and, and really spreading that message and that legacy.
1: Beautiful. What made you start this specific niche business within the podcasting, making the connections? Why that? Were you a podcaster for a while? Did you want to share your voice and you didn't know where to start? There must have been something that ignited this idea.
0: I actually didn't found the business. My business partner founded it in 2013 because her dad is a business coach. So he helped her start this virtual assistance business. And one of the things he had her doing was booking him on podcasts because he saw the opportunity in guesting on other people's shows really early in 2013. And then he helped her to niche down to just booking to grow that business to six figures. And then I came on in 2016 as a contractor because of this connection with the cat. That's how I saw the job opportunity. And I was like, great i hadn't listened to podcasts except for cereal. i just wanted to work from home it very quickly grew i became the first employee in 2017 and i was able to bring all the skills and all the personal development i had gotten from the house clean and from losing my dad and from all the therapy that i had done to being the first employee of a business which in a startup it can be crazy and when you're someone who can handle anything and thrive in that environment you move up very quickly so I was the first employee in 2017. And then in 2018, I asked for 50% equity in the business and got.
1: She was a full-time booker. She was a VA. Then she niched Mm -hmm. into being a booker for her father, which is he was a speaker and a coach.
0: He was her first client and he's also a business coach. So he coached her to grow Interview Connections. She increased the number of entrepreneurs they were booking. She grew a team of contractors. And she was growing that. And then I came on as a contractor and then became the first employee. And then we switched from a contractor model to a fully W-2
1: employee model. I'm speechless. But think about the courage that you had to say, I'm going to believe in in you. You believed in your partner. And you said, I want yeah. 50% equity. I'm going to give my heart and soul. I'm going to put everything in. And I believe in you. I believe in myself and together we're going to do this. And look how far you came. What is it? Four years later? My first
0: goal was we're, we're going to hit seven figures. And at that point we were at like low six figures, but it really was because of the house clean. Cause like I said, Before that, I really, my inner monologue about anything, even remotely challenging was like, I can't do it. I came in after that house clean and I was a beast. And part of why she gave me 50% equity is because she was like, anything Margie says she's going to do, it's going to happen. And I mapped it out. This is how we're getting into seven figures. This is how I can quadruple your take-home income this year. Here's the numbers. Here's the price points. Here's the number of clients we need here's a number of people you would have to close. And she was like, we can do this. And I was like, I know, let's do it. And she was like, all right. So I came in so aggressive with this vision, with this strategy to get there. And with this confidence that I only had because I had taken on this incredible task with the house and won.
1: Who are your mentors that you knew to do what you just explained in 30 seconds? That takes mentorship. Like not something that you're born with. Who was your mentor that told you you could do it? And this is how you... How many clients, what you charge, how many, how often, and this is how we get to seven and our expenses.
0: I didn't have a mentor for that. I wasn't working with the coach. No, I just, I just am meant to run businesses. So I had like people I loved, like spiritual teachers. Yeah. So that's what I'm asking.
1: Yeah. That taught you, have the vision, map it out, follow it. So that's what I'm asking. Who are your mentors in your mindset? not in the the day-to-day yeah. coaching, but who are your mindset coaches?
0: The mindset stuff was really Eckhart Tolle and Abraham Hicks. I didn't have any business mentors. I wasn't like listening to business podcasts or have a business coach. So the mapping it out and the strategy and that stuff, that was more honestly from the house clean because you have to approach a project like that very strategically with the steps in the right order. Just from having to figure that out for myself doing the house, I was able to apply that almost directly to a business.
1: The only difference is that you're doing it alone with the house and with a business, you have to convince people to come along. How did you not see that as a fear factor? What if people don't convert? Like at the voice of the head, like I could do it alone. Okay. I'm nothing stopping me. I know I'm in with the cleaning of the house. How do I apply that to business and make sure that people convert?
0: The house was a much harder because convincing my mom I had to re-enroll her every single day talk about a nightmare client mm-hmm. She's a client I would have cut loose on day one but right. I couldn't because she's my mom so right. it was much harder with the house and okay. I needed to find people I needed to hire cleaners I needed to hire an exterminator I needed to figure out all this stuff plumbers like there was so many people that I needed help from that I had to enroll and ask for help I had to ask our neighbors to park in their driveway because we had a dumpster in ours. I had to ask someone to borrow their van to clean out his storage facility. It was really about finding a lot of who's too, which was also really applicable to hiring. But it was, the house was so hard. Everybody told me it was impossible. People like begged me to not even do it because they were like, it's too much. You've been through too much. It was so much harder than even growing like a billion dollar business. And now I have so much confidence in business because if I could do that and get my mother to cooperate, I can
1: do anything. I love it. You just said that you had to figure things out. During the pandemic, Guy Raz was interviewing. He's one of my podcast gurus. And he was interviewing, I think it was the it was about resilience, like with businesses, how they survived pandemic. And he interviewed the second interview for Airbnb and how the founders and what, what they did to evolve with the pandemic, because they lost 80% of their revenue within the first month. And then they were acquired yeah. within the pandemic. They flipped it around. And not only did they survive, they were acquired for crazy, like I think, I don't know, 10 billion or crazy, something crazy or maybe 50 billion, I don't remember. But he said that when they went to Silicon Valley to get their first investors, they had to prove that they can work things out. They were trying to do Airbnb from their own apartment space out. They had a whole plan, but they were cash poor. So it was during Obama um, campaign and they decided that they're going to sell cereal boxes and they're going to call it Obama owes. And they're going to sell limited edition of, I don't remember, it was like $200 for a cereal box for this convention. And they sold out and they made enough money to start their first round of employees. And the, the when the guy was listening to the story, he said, I don't care how much money you can make. I care that you have solutions when things get rough. And he said, the Obama owes these cereal boxes shows that you know how to find solutions. Just like you were saying, I needed to find parking spots. I needed to find staff. How to figure it out. Not saying, oh no, I hit a wall. How do we figure it out? And this is why I think you're so successful in your business because you see a challenge and you're like, bring it on. I'm going to figure it out.
0: I think that's what stops people because until you're forced to do that, sometimes you just feel like you can get stopped. But the secret that a lot of people know is that you actually can keep going. If you just don't take, stopping for an answer. And you think you can figure out things that you would never imagine you would be able to get past and get through.
1: Yeah. I just wrote about conquering our fears and not letting our fears tell us that we're failures because our, our fear of failure is what stops us from creating our dream. And I speak about Thomas Edison, that it took him a thousand times till he figured out the light bulb. So he said, I didn't fail a thousand times. I figured out a thousand times how it's not going to work. Fear of failure really stops us from achieving our dreams. And you have that vision. No, it's just going to work. So maybe I'm going to knock on three doors and they're not going to open, but the fourth will, and maybe they'll open a tiny bit. And then maybe I'll go in there a little bit and then another door will open a little bit more, but keep on knocking on the doors. That's really
0: an amazing analogy because I met my business partner because we were door-to-door fundraisers. So we were knocking on people's doors and asking them for money. Wow. What, was it scary? I loved it, but I thought it would be scary. And then I realized I loved it and I was really good at it. And I would, and which is a weird skill that's very applicable to being an entrepreneur.
1: Yeah. Sarah Blakely talks about that. She's one of my mentors. Like Jesse Itzler is my real mentor because I joined his community and i met her a bunch of times and she knows how obsessed i am with her mind and how she's so like big yeah. she has a masterclass and i recommend it to everyone i happen to have spoken to her directly and she really gave me tips one on one but it's the same things that she speaks about all the time so thank god for technology you don't have to meet her in order to get her brilliant yeah. mind so she said the fact that i went through thousands of doors selling fax machines and getting door after door closed on me that's what helped me figure out Spanx. If I didn't have that school in the beginning of the resilience of getting thrown out of buildings, and she said, cursed and thrown out of buildings and crying and, and torn her business cards up in front of her. And if I didn't have that platform to, to know I can achieve anything, I wouldn't be able to start Spanx. You have to know that doors are going to be slammed on you and you're going to continue. I love
0: that so much. Yeah, that's so true.
1: Yeah. Give us words, closing words of wisdom of what you want to tell people that either have a a loved one that is going through hoarding or maybe wants to become an entrepreneur like you and wants to do it the right way and has the fear in the way. What would you tell them? Because you are fierce and fearless and you're like, no, remove the fear. So what would you tell either the person that's living with a loved one That's a hoarder or the fear factor in the way.
0: It's so funny to be called fearless now because I was just like so controlled by fear for the majority of my life. So it's really funny, but I think that just shows that anything is possible. Like even if being a fearful person is like part of who you think you are, you can be fearless. My biggest things are that it really is a personal development mindset game. Get your trauma processing, do your therapy, meditate every day. Like it's a personal development game. It's not about the external stuff that feels really hard to accomplish and achieve. That stuff is the easier stuff. It's really a mental game and like working on yourself. And then the other thing I would say is read or listen to who, not how, and then implement that. If there's stuff in your life that you feel like you can't, don't do it. Just find the who can do it for you or do it with you. And that will help you start speeding up and get your momentum back.
1: Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. So people, you can follow Margie by look going to her new podcast, but I really want to send them to your business platform. So where should they find you?
0: So our business website is interviewconnections.com. And then the podcast is We Get It, Your Dad Died. There's a comma after we get it. And it is on Spotify and Apple Podcasts.
1: Thank you again for joining me here. And I can't wait to see where we will meet again. Thank you so much for having me. Bye till next time. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you for staying with us till the end. If you know anyone that can benefit from this episode, forward it to them. If you want to join us on Ignite Your Life Retreat, take action now. We are having specials until the end of Hanukkah. Go to our link in the show notes, Ignite Your Life Retreat. We have specials, we have offers, we have exciting things coming your way. Don't miss out. If you haven't left us an iTunes review, please do that as our Hanukkah gift. Take 30 seconds of your time and leave us a nice review. Thank you from the bottom of our hearts and mental health together is better have a wonderful holiday season bye till next time